I've seen a large number of companies fail, not because they failed to execute, but because they actually succeeded in execution, <laughs> but they were doing the wrong thing. And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Our guest this week is Brad Matson, who's been appropriately described as a Silicon Valley legend. Brad's founded and run two renewable energy companies, and he wrote The Solar Phoenix, How America Can Rise from the Ashes of Solyndra to World Leadership in Solar 2.0. But before he shifted his energy over to solar, Brad took two semiconductor companies from his garage all the way to NASDAQ, the only person in the world to have ever done that. He's also been a venture capitalist, and I think you'll find his rich background equips him with some of the most valuable insights I've found for growing and running your company. Brad, thank you for doing this, my friend. I really appreciate this. Absolutely. You rose in the tech industry and then went into clean tech. And I want to know what started you on this path or set you up for it. Well, it was my third career. I went into venture capital and I really enjoyed that job. I, it was fun seeing, helping kind of nurture a lot of companies uh, come along. But in one of those areas, uh, I found clean tech. I was in a clean tech venture firm. I fell in love with solar. But really the background behind that is I spent 40 years building technology kind of for technology's sake. And it gets to a point when you have iPhone 8, 9, 10, okay, now we're gonna have 13. What are you adding to society <laughs> by getting iPhone 13? And I, I really had a pivotal point. It came at 9-11, watching, I was sitting with my kids watching the Twin Towers come down and I committed myself then to technology benefiting humanity. Are there reliably distinct features about being a clean economy company CEO versus a CEO in other sectors? Yeah, oh, oh definitely, definitely. It, it depends on sector, sector by sector. But the sector I came from, semiconductors, quite frankly, we didn't have a competitive status quo. I guess you could say um, uh, GE or, you know, Westinghouse, some of the old ones, the old light bulbs, so really, when semiconductors took over, there was no competitor. It wasn't like we had entrenched status quo. You take oil and gas, we didn't have the equivalent of an oil and gas company. We didn't have the equivalent of bureaucratic 100-year-old utilities that were defending their turf and trying to prevent new technologies from coming on board. So the difference in clean tech is a very strong status quo, very strong, uh, there's dinosaurs out there, but they're in the shape of 900-pound gorillas. So I think as a CEO here, you have to be much more aware of the external uh, headwinds you have and devote some of your time to figure out how to navigate those. It isn't, it's just like build a better mousetrap, you're done. Quite frankly, and I had it easy in my earlier career, you build a better mousetrap, you win, you know, game over. <laughs> it was nice. Going to solar was, was tricky, you know? And uh, so I think that uh, clean tech CEOs, I think as a group, we all, uh, need to look at those headwinds and find clever ways to navigate those. It's, it's, uh, it's trickier, for sure. In other words, what I hear you saying is when you're at the helm of a clean economy company, 
it's important to distinguish being a new part of a new industry versus a new sector within an existing industry. Because if it's the latter, you are going to be disrupting somebody else's hold on market share, and they're not going to just sit back and allow you to do it. Exactly. And they often have been spending hundreds of millions of dollars in government institutions to create legislation that will slow you down. I mean, it is a, it's a big boys game. It's a tough one. And, you know, energy in this case, if you're talking about a lot of the clean tech stuff, it is energy related is, is a trillion dollar economy. I mean, it's, it's huge. So I think that's uh, tricky and, and it's, it takes some really clever, more strategic planning. You can, you know, look at your strategy of having a uh, safe niche to begin in, uh, get established, uh, or you can actually work on some of those externalities, work, you know, find out how the regulations are going to benefit you. So I think you just have to really work on externalities more. Uh, and in your strategic planning, uh, this resilience I'm mentioning, this backup plan, having a plan A, plan B, you have to be ready uh, for a lot of contingencies in that world. Because you can be hit, you can do everything right. And, and this is what I hate about this part of it. You can do everything right and maybe not make it even if you do everything right. That's tough. That's really tough. How would you say your leadership style has changed over the years? It's one of them derives from being this engineer. <laughs> and it's, if you're solving problems, it means you're always looking for what's wrong. And it turns out, as your wife will probably tell you, if you're always looking for the problems, <laughs> it's not a good way to have a long-term relationship. So this ratio of providing good news to bad news or you know, in terms of any kind of human endeavor uh, is real. So one of the things over in leadership over time is I learned to really work on providing positive feedback. Uh, and I think the ratio is four to five to one that they'll tell you these days is necessary to the one negative feedback. And, and that was hard for an engineer because I just wanna go right to the problem. Let's just solve the problem and get emotion out of the way. And so I, I really needed to work on that kind of uh, feedback. So I think that was a second one is really uh, paying attention to that ratio, not being so much of an engineer when it comes to uh, leadership. Uh, I kind of always looked at leadership as providing direction, providing answers. And I would have a, try to have an answer for everything. But I kind of learned over time that having the right question is more important than having the right answer. Uh, it's, it's really key. And I think that's what I'm still learning is to ask more good questions because this is what actually develops people is that they really need to go through the process. If you keep handing people things, it doesn't really work to build your organization. You have to discover them, develop them themselves. Then they internalize it and they really own it. So asking the right questions is more important than providing the right answer. Interesting. Who are your most important mentors and what did you learn from each one? Probably Bob Graham, who was one of the co-founders of Intel, was my early boss. I think he was my third boss and the only one I really uh, gained a lot from. And he was, not only did I learn uh, basic management, but he was a marketing expert. Uh, and, and, and so I learned a lot about that, but also the basic, uh, uh, how to handle people. Uh, he also, of course, Questions were the answer came from him <laughs> and uh, strategic planning. He focused so much on, are we headed in the right direction? Uh, that I really adopted so many of the things I learned from him. So he was the key one. And, and quite frankly, after that, 
I started my first company pretty young, so I didn't. <laughs> I was out on my own after that, so I didn't have a lot of mentors on the along the way after that. You agree or disagree with the following statement? In business, it's more important what you don't do than what you choose to do. This is a tough one. I have to agree and disagree. I mean, I am a huge fan of prioritization. And when there's so many things coming, as you know, a big skill is what you don't do. And I preach that quite a bit. I'd have to honestly say, though, that I've seen a large number of companies fail, not because they failed to execute, but because they actually succeeded in execution. (laughs) but they were doing the wrong thing. <laughs> so, so to your point on what you do do, if you really haven't correctly identified the weakness in the market, you haven't really seen what's, what's going on there and address that problem, address that thing correctly, uh, you'll execute yourself off a cliff. And I've seen any number of companies really do that. So I can't go with the, the kind of conventional wisdom on this one would be prioritization and, and decide what you do do. But I would tell this about, not as a CEO, but in, in management, I don't, and you know, if the CEO is providing the right leadership, then I think for the next level of management, your, your C-suite, right, your uh, senior leadership team, it really is them focusing and not doing, as you're saying. So I'd say senior leadership team, it's more what you don't do, focus and execute. The CEO, I might not be able to get away with that because they have to make sure the ship is headed in the right direction. So given that you've been on both sides of the table, you've been an investor and you've been a CEO, you've seen a lot of different CEOs and their backgrounds. If you are going to computer generate the prototype of the successful set of qualities that a clean economy CEO will have to be most likely to succeed, what would be on the list? Uh, it might be a traditional, you know, Harvard Business School list, frankly. Uh, so I don't want to be too boring, but I found this to pan out in real world as well. So on the list, really, a key one is uh, first some marketing knowledge and skills. If you don't define the problem in the market, if you incorrectly, as I mentioned earlier, point that ship, <laughs> point it in the wrong direction, you're dead to begin with. So really understanding the market in more detail, not reading a market report. If you're reading a market report to understand the market, you're probably already in trouble. So you have to know the market. So usually I think to be very successful, you really have to understand it pretty deeply. So that's the first set. Uh, another set of skills, and this is not always in the same brain. This is why I think it's a rare find to get the, the right set of characteristics would be technical skills. Because at least in my experience, a lot of the solutions come through technology. And, and so really being able to evaluate various technologies and see which is best fit for this market. How do you, you know, does this, do you have the right answer for the right question? Um, and so that kind of ability to decipher, understand, see, select technology, and then manage technology development uh, is also um, uh, tricky. So I think when you combine kind of the marketing capability and the technical ability to be able to make the fit, can I, do I have the right solution for the right market is probably the number one thing. Um, but on top of that now, uh, <laughs> we'll come to funding and some of the other questions. Uh, understanding finances and being able to raise money is absolutely critical. Uh, and so I think that uh, some of the uh, skill, skills and just having some charisma, having the ability to present an idea uh, in a very lucid manner, in a convincing manner with confidence and uh, is, is not trivial. 
So I think uh, some of these other skills and, and you know, personal skills and really uh, ability to project yourself well, those all fit in too, because I think you would see, ask other people, you know, clean economy CEOs, it must be, it might be as much as 30, 40, even 50% of your time you're fundraising. <laughs> it's a big part of your job. So besides managing and doing everything else I mentioned, you're also a fundraiser. All right, let me follow up on that. You said on both sides of the table, as we noted, what is the best pitch when you were an investor? What is the best pitch you ever heard and what made it a great pitch? Well, obviously I kind of gave you some of the boxes you have to check off, right? Um, so I think probably the best pitch is the from the company that I'm currently chairman of because it actually sucked me in. <laughs> in the beginning, I, I helped them mentoring and everything else. And then in the end, I ended up becoming uh, chairman. What, what made it good was this uh, identifying a big problem. And this one was energy poverty, which is not a small task. And in, in fitting in with my technology benefiting humanity, this is where we can apply technology to really solve a big problem. So big, big hole in the market, big hole in the market, you know, with a, a billion people without access to energy, you know, it, it, that's not small. So big market, a lot of opportunity. And then he had very unique technology, uh, which was a uh, kind of, I would say, agricultural waste to energy technology which you take rice husks uh, from agricultural areas. Cause a lot of places that don't have electricity that don't have energy access are all farming. They're all agricultural areas. So you have you know, this waste that you could turn into electricity and do it very economically. So they had a very interesting technical solution for a very big market. And then they assembled a, quite a class of characters. So the, you know, besides the market, an interesting and, and big and important market, a good technical solution that fits that it is really the team you start to look at then. Can this group execute? Do they have what it takes? And uh, they had assembled an interesting uh, dynamic team with people that understood finance, technology, marketing. So they had the kind of the skill base necessary to execute the plan. So those are the kind of things I look for uh, in, in deals. Uh, have they really defined an important hole in market that's interesting? Uh, do they have a solution that's unique and differentiated from others and should, is, looks workable? And do they have the horsepower? Do they have the team to put it together? Because they may not have money. Uh, that's usual. They don't have money. But uh, the team often is what will convince investors to come in. So if they have a team, then, then I think that uh, leads to the probability they may get financed too, which, which, of course, is the goal. Hiring. You hear it cited as arguably the most important thing that a CEO does is at the early stage of a company is ensure that the right team is in place. What have you learned about identifying and attracting the right talent? Well, in this one, I might end up being a little bit controversial. Um, I would say it is true. Of course, hiring is important. You have to have a team. Quite frankly, though, in starting a company, it often turns out that you just need that one really strong person and in the hiring, it might not be the team you're really putting together. It's really you're hiring very competent workers, people that really know, they might know the solar technology better than anyone in the world, but they're not a manager, but they really know it. So you need really competent people that can help you execute your vision. And as much as you might in an early stage when you're startup wanting to have the best executive C-suite around, a lot of them won't go to a startup. So it's not easy to hire the best in the world, but what you can get is you can get really good engineers, really good salesmen, really good people. So in the early times, I think the hiring challenge um, it is really along making sure you get competent, experienced people. Don't try to train anyone. 
they have to have pay for the experience, buy the learning curve. It's just too expensive when you're a startup to make any mistakes. So don't get people right out of college. I see so many startups, they hire eight postdocs right out of MIT. I mean, I love MIT, <laughs> but they're gonna learn a lot of mistakes before they really become effective and you can't afford those mistakes. So pay for the learning curve, very competent people to help you execute. And if you can get a very senior manager in the early stages, absolutely get them. But I would argue the hiring becomes key on the team in growth. Some CEOs never make the transition and don't hire that team and they get petered out at some level. You just can't do it yourself. You just can't. And I end up having a ratio. It's kind of silly, but I'm sure it depends on industry. But you know, I think a really uh, strong, powerful CEO can take a company to 100, 200 million dollars in sales. You know, but if you really want to build something of substance, you're looking at a billion. It's roughly the ratio is there: 100 to 200 million per person. So you need, you know, to get to a billion dollar entity, you need five superstars. I mean, that's a lot. It's not easy to get five superstars in one company. So as you grow, I think that the the team thing. Now, don't mention this. I would I would advise the entrepreneurs out there not to mention this to their investors that, oh, don't worry about the team. <laughs> they won't like that. You don't say this. <laughs> it's always about the team. They think it's you. But honestly, for them, internally, they do know that what I'm saying is, is true about that. It's, it is the CEO. That's mainly what they're investing in. They want to see the team really is kind of insurance. You know, they want to just have more bodies in there and more capability in there. Sure, everyone should. Uh, but they realize that. And often when in the venture capital side, we knew we had three CEOs to go through uh, when we were growing a company to a billion dollar scale. It was really the first one was that idea guy. Um, but he really may not be market knowledge. The second CEO would know how to bring a product to the market. And then the third one was a scaling CEO. So we had our, you know, ABC CEOs for almost entity. And, and you'd rarely see a CEO cross through those three barriers. It was, a, it was really the exception, one out of 10 would make it through all three, all three stages. Because it turns out the first two are easier because you can get that technology guy who also is a marketing guy could you know, bring the product to market. As I mentioned, I looked at those two key things. That's pro more common. The one that will let go and build a team and realize he's building a company. It's not a technology anymore. You're building a company. And it's all about the structure, the, the processes, the team, the, and processes is a big part of it. A CEO that understands that need and can get five superstars. Uh, you know, it's like running an adult daycare center at that point. <laughs> it is hard with all those egos in the same room. <laughs> um, but that's a unique personality. Um, so I think it, this team thing definitely changes uh, versus the stage of the company. Uh, and it's most important in the growth stage. In the early stage, charisma and drive and that kind of person can, can gut it through. Um, and then I think, you know, so hiring is always important in early stage. It's very capable engineers and people to execute. Later, it's people to grow the company, which is management. And in that third stage, what are tips you would give for fast growing companies on how to attract people to fill the ranks of that team? It's not easy. It's, a, it's, it's kind of tough. This is where actually... Mike, I've worked with you in the past in terms of thought leadership. You need to work on your brand and you need to get it out there that you're going to do something unique. And, and that brand will affect the ability to recruit people. Absolutely does. And in that, you want to have some thought leadership. You want to be out there just not doing what everyone else does. If you're smaller than the other guys, you might not be able to offer as big enough salary. 
you really want to focus on this brand of we're going to change things. We're making things happen. And a big element of being able to recruit them is that. The other one is don't be stingy. So many CEOs are, are founders, right? And the founders are stingy with their stock. So don't be stingy. <laughs> you know, these teams are going to make it big, you know, share the wealth. And maybe I'm biased because having done an IPO, I've seen you can make a lot of millionaires. Don't worry. I mean, everyone's going to make out. <laughs> it goes in two directions. You all make it and you can just share the wealth. Or if you don't make it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so you know, basically, let go of the purse strings and, and share that ownership and let them be part of the, the team that, that, that's going to make it. And uh, they need to feel that to put in the 120%, 150% takes to, to make it work. So I'd say uh, uh, share the wealth. And you have to really modify your management style as you grow the company to letting go more. Uh, you basically, the really capable people need their own world to work in, need their own sandbox to play in. And so you have to change management styles to be more delegative and, and uh, give people room to operate uh, because that's what fulfills them. And the real superstars have choices to go anywhere. They really do. And so you have to provide that kind of work environment that's conducive to those kind of stars. On the other side of personnel, what are the cues you found that are pretty reliable when it's time to let someone go? Um, I think the number one one really is uh, attitude. And, and I have a little formula I work with that, uh, I don't know if I get a picture on the board. You take knowledge and skill, you put that together as an asset. You multiply it times attitude. So it turns out in that mathematical formula, uh, and that equals performance. So it turns out in that mathematical formula, if your attitude is zero, you have zero performance. But more importantly, if your attitude is negative, you're taking all that knowledge and skills and driving it in a different direction. That's called cancer <laughs> in your organization and you need to get rid of it immediately. So I think if you don't have alignment of core values or alignment in direction or any of these really key things that in your organization, mission alignment, you might call it. Um, and if it's a, especially if it's a strong, capable person, you have to let them go. Uh, that, that kind of thing uh, could be cancer. And, and quite frankly, in this area, uh, it, I was never fast enough to fire. Uh, I, did, I really, this is one of my weaknesses was I would work with people and I'd want to hope for the best, but you know, psychologists will tell you after, I don't know what age, probably 15, but at some age, your personality is kind of fixed and people are not going to change. So you don't correct fix, you know, any of those things, right? You know, if there's, if there's not mission alignment, if there's a, a bad attitude, if the, you might call it political behavior, although I think politics isn't bad. Politics is how good things happen too as well. But if it's kind of negative political behavior, you have to have a very short fuse. What's the toughest interview question you've ever asked of a prospective employee of yours? It's a simple one. Tell me your, tell me your weakness. And, and I might even coddle it and say, listen, if you come on board six months from now, I'm going to do a, you know, a review of your performance and I'm going to know what it is. <laughs> so just tell me now. <laughs> so let's get it out in the open. So I tried lots of ways to coddle them to get that one. Eight out of 10 people fail this, this question. They'll be saying something like, oh, I care too much about my employees. Oh, I work too hard. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of things. To me, honestly, it takes a lot of confidence to talk about your weaknesses. And, but that's what I'm actually looking for. What I've found over time is just people respond to challenges in one of two ways. They either are defensive, like, oh, no, that's not me, or they're open and receptive 
to a, a critique, right? The ones that are open and receptive are learners. And what happens over time is they just get more and more capable because they're open, they're listening, and they react to the ones that make sense, you know, and they just develop their capabilities because they're constantly taking that stuff in. If you're constantly pushing it back and making excuses, you probably learn less. You don't internalize it and you become less capable over time. So the people I've seen that are lifelong learners have the confidence to say, yes, I have these issues uh, and I'm working on them. This one I've succeeded on, this one I haven't quite succeeded yet. Those are the people I, I want because they're gonna really grow. If they're not per, you know, great today, they'll, they'll become great because they're on a quest and they're not trying to protect any weakness they have. They're trying to discover it and they're, they're working on it. So that, that's easily the toughest question, but I, I've, uh, it doesn't cover the one or two out of 10 that are exceptional, <laughs> but it, it doesn't get a lot of information from the rest. Last question. If there were five CEOs of clean economy companies in front of you right now, they're all under 40, what advice would you give them based on your experience? That makes me think of my, my favorite quote, which uh, comes from Darwin, and I probably can't paraphrase it perfectly, but uh, in terms of evolution, it's not the strongest, it's not the fastest, it's not the smartest, it's not the most, you know, it's not any of those, those things. It's the, it's the species most adaptable to change that survives. And so I'd pass this along because I believe it fits in the clean economy technology, the clean economy area is adaptability. Uh, my number one advice is uh, be capable and funded to be able to adapt, pivot as you need to keep on surviving. Because one thing we know is every company that failed had one thing in common. They ran out of money. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's 100% in common. So uh, don't do that. Got it. Well, Brad Matson, thank you for being my first interview. Thank you for being my mentor and my friend and my client. And um, I really appreciate you being our, our first. I'm hey, so it's grateful. a pleasure. Uh, and back at you, it's a, it's a pleasure being uh, friends and working with you when we have the chance. Our thanks to my friend and Silicon Valley legend, Brad Matson. This is Scaling Clean, a production of TigerCom. I'm Mike Casey, and I thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to our show for free anywhere you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.